Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer. This episode is brought to you by our investigative platform Noteworthy, where we carry out journalistic projects based on ideas sent to us by the public. I'm Susan Daly, and recently we published an investigation into the public health system by reporter Peter Maguire. Public health reform, or talk of it, was a key issue during the pandemic when staffing and numerous other problems came to the fore. So three years after COVID was first identified, did that jolt to an already creaking public health system inspire change? Is it in a better place? Well, to find out, I'm joined today by Peter and also Dr Anne D, specialist in public health medicine and chair of the Public Health Committee at the Irish Medical Organisation. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Peter and Anne. Now, Peter, if I may start with you to get our heads clear on what we mean by public health. While the health system in general has been very much in the news this winter, public health is a very specific area. Could you please clarify for me and the listeners what it is and what it is not? Okay, so public health doctors are very concerned, not with the health of individuals, which is what we normally expect from doctors, but the wider health of the wider population. So a good public health system is focused not just on diseases, but also on keeping population groups of all ages and all backgrounds healthy and well. So we would all, I suppose, remember over the past few years with the pandemic, public health was very focused on infection control. And we've seen it in more recent months as well, of course, with COVID and flu and RSV. And in the past year with uh, with MPOX, which was formerly known as monkeypox, um, which we also wrote about on Noteworthy. It's also concerned with healthy eating, with drug and alcohol consumption, with air quality, with pollution, both indoors and outdoors. And for instance, we've seen some you know, conversations recently about gas stoves in people's houses. That would be an issue for public health. Um, it's also concerned, and this is quite crucial, with social inequality and how the social inequality between different groups of people can cause health problems. Very crucially, and this is an important point, it's not what people often think of when you think of public health as in public health versus private health insurance. It's not that. It's very much focused on the health of populations. And Sarah Burke, who's the Associate Professor in Health Policy and the, uh, and the Director of the Centre for Health Policy and Management at Trinity College Dublin, she told me during my investigation, I thought this was kind of a, a very good um, definition that public health refers to all the factors that influence our health and well-being. It's not just about medicine, but also our income, our access to clean air, job opportunities and relationships. So good public health means that everyone has access to the best or the highest quality well-being. Thanks, Peter. I think I'm clear on that now. So public health is key to keeping us all healthy and well. And ideally, there should be an equity in that across society, no matter what strata, what cohort you belong to. And how well, in your opinion, if I may ask, is our public health system currently doing on that score? Public health, I suppose, from my point of view, it's a medical specialty like surgery or geriatrics or paediatrics. And so the the doctors that specialise in public health uh, medicine, um, you know, practice public health medicine as their specialty. So public health is kind of an invisible specialty. Um, It doesn't tend to, in peace times when you don't have a pandemic, get a lot of attention because our job is to prevent illness, to prevent uh, inequity, to prevent, you know, inequitable distribution of access to services. And so when things are going smoothly, nobody is aware of us. 
because of that, I suppose, funding for public health is always at the bottom of the pile because it's not a sort of, it doesn't make um, the, the headlines. Nobody comes out and says public health haven't prevented a lot of heart disease this year. Or, you know, there's a major problem with obesity. Public health, you know, should be working harder on it. People don't make that connection. And therefore, politicians, you know, uh, don't have any great kudos to gain by funding it. And, and a lot of what happens in health, I suppose, is, is what brings, especially in the Irish Health Service, you know, what is a political problem tends to get funded. Um, it, it, it This has been a problem for decades in public health in Ireland. It was at the bottom of the pile and very badly funded. And when the recession came, it was funding was pretty much almost completely wiped out in a sense. It was just a very basic service meeting our international obligations almost. Uh, but then the, the pandemic came along and it shone a big light on the the holes in our public health specialty and the, the practice of public health medicine in Ireland and the practice of population health, which is another way of describing it. And so it became very obvious that the, the what was there was was completely it was a tiny um, specialty with a tiny workforce and completely incapable of of meeting the needs of even the pandemic. With those gaps exposed by COVID, has reform started taking place? We did very well as a country during COVID because every single resource that we had in public health medicine was diverted into. Um, managing the COVID pandemic. And while that was still a relatively small resource, the whole country worked together. And there's a definition of public health that says it's the art and science of preventing disease, prolonging life and promoting health through the the organised efforts of society. And we saw that very much during COVID because it wasn't just the doctors in the offices, it was the people on the street obeying the regulation. It was the politicians uh, putting out the legislation and regulating so that they had to legislate for some things to make them happen. Uh, and that's that's a good example of, of how you need the combined efforts of the whole of society to achieve a good public health outcome. So there, there are kind of four streams in public health medicine. And um, for now, you know, in our reformed public health system, only the first one, only the health protection one has actually been fully reformed and the other three remain to be completed. So I would say that the health protection function is working. I think it's working well by international standards. It's just beginning to, you know, really embed in. But there are many other parts of it that have not yet been um, delivered. Okay, so a good start, but there's plenty more to deliver on. But they're running to catch up, Peter, as Anne points out. Uh, this is largely an invisible sector until there's an emergency, as we see with so many things, and there's political willpower to, to change it. So you've been looking at the challenges that were exposed there, that faced our public health system and, to Anne's testimony, there still do. What did you find? Are there successes and what's still lagging behind? We found that the targets for equipment to public health doctors, nurses and allied health professionals are actually broadly on track. And that's somewhat unusual in investigative journalism, particularly covering health, to find that you know, things are relatively on target and things are going OK. That's not, of course, to take away from the large hospital overcrowding problems that we've seen in the past month. But of course, public health medicine, you know, the health of populations is a very specific discipline. But of course, although recruitment has been largely successful, the experts we spoke to emphasise there's still a lot of work to be done in establishing the systems needed to support these professionals. 
Um, we'll need better data collection and analysis systems, which currently lag behind. Um, the new public health function will also likely need to pr- promote and focus on the connection between poverty, low income and poor health outcomes. And the public health experts say that what happens next and crucially whether or not the slauncher care reforms uh, are implemented will, will be crucial. Peter, one of the biggest challenges reported over the past few years that people will be familiar with is that public health doctors were not awarded consultant status. What has been done to address this? So in 2018, a report was commissioned by the Department of Health from Crow Howarth. Uh, and one of the key recommendations was a strengthened contract for consultants in public health medicine. In October 2020, then the public health workforce plan was agreed and 17.3 million euro was committed to deliver 250.6 additional whole time equivalent multidisciplinary resources. And this was both to support the pandemic response, but also more broadly in the area of public health to implement a new service delivery model for public health. And 94% of the resources are agreed under this 17.3 million euro plan are now in place. So when the recruitment was happening, everybody was kind of saying, this isn't going to work. You know, we're not going to, the environment is too tough for recruitment. And the freedom of information documents that we secured showed that the former HSE CAO, Paul Reid, warned Stephen Donnelly that there would indeed be these recruitment challenges. So for this area, getting buy-in from all the stakeholders, including the doctors and nurses and the various health professionals and the HSE and everybody involved was really key. And there did seem to be a strong will to push this through to get it over the line. And this is really it's interesting because it's in contrast to some other areas of health. Um, my colleagues in Noteworthy looked at the treatment of eating disorders over the past couple of years and in an update to that investigation this month Noteworthy reported that only one additional specialist eating disorder team was in operation over the past year and this was due to issues of recruitment with staff so they were able to do it here but not they had some trouble in you know some other areas of, of health and figures provided to Noteworthy for this investigation provided by the HSE as I said they showed that 94% of these resources are now in place um, and of the 250.6 whole-time equivalent posts, 234.6 have been filled. So part of the success of this must come down to setting targets and aggressively pursuing them. And this really shows the change in Irish healthcare. I think it is possible. And more broadly, that setting targets and having benchmarks for, to getting to those targets over a number of years can really work. And as a specialist yourself working in this field and chairing the committee as you do uh, for the IMO, why were there no consultants in this area historically? It seems so strange to me that that would be been the case. And how do you feel about those recent changes? And the 250.6 posts that have almost been completely filled, those are the support staff for the consultants or the specialists working in public health medicine. Um, So those are like the teams that will be led by consultants. Those figures do not include the 84 consultants that were also agreed to be recruited over a 30 month timeframe. And at the moment, um, only 34 of those posts have been filled and another five have been advertised. So we're just less than half have been um, either filled or, or, or re- recruited. Um, 
so more just over half remain and there's only 11 months remaining in the 13-month 30, 30 um, time frame. So um, while it is good progress, um, it is slowing down and it is of great worry to me that we now have a position where we have teams with no consultant to lead them. And this is, it would be akin to having, employing a, a, an orthopaedic surgeon um, you know, in the past, people did employ orthopedic surgeons and the surgeons complained there was no team. So th this is like turning that on its head and you, you employ the team, but you have no surgeon in place, you have no consultant in place. So this is actually becoming a little bit of a worry to me because the, the whole pace of recruitment slowed down um, very much towards the end of 2022 and has not picked up again in 2023. So. Um, I think we need to watch that space very carefully because if the momentum there is lost, we will have 250, um, you know, 234 people recruited into a service with nobody or, or, or only the health protection teams to lead them and, and no non-health protection. So those are the three big areas that are hugely important. So uh, while it is going well, it certainly has slowed down. Uh, very significantly in the last few months. And there has been no advertising of posts that were due to be advertised in quarter three of 20 or quarter four of 2022 and due to be uh, recruited and in place by the end of quarter one, quarter two, 2023. So as I said, this is a big worry to me. And what are the challenges to recruitment? Are we talking working conditions, pay, loss of people to other jurisdictions? Absolutely. So we have like there remains to be recruited um, uh, quick sums, a, a 44, um, I think, um, 45 posts. And, you know, there's a lot of that's a, that's a big ask in 11 months, a huge ask. So I, I, it is a bit frightening that they've slowed that down so much. But there were doctors who were trained in the specialty of public health medicine working in Ireland uh, before the pandemic. There were about 60 of them. So they were fully trained uh, specialist doctors in public health medicine. The problem was that these doctors weren't offered a consultant contract like you would at the end of your higher specialist training in any other specialty. They were offered a specialist contract, which was um, it, it didn't have the uh, autonomy, it didn't have the power it, and it didn't have the terms and conditions of our consultant colleagues in other specialties. This meant two things. It meant, first of all, that we weren't attractive uh, in competing for consultants um, as other specialties. And therefore, you know, that that obviously affects your recruitment. You know, if somebody can earn twice as much or almost twice as much in another specialty, you know, and they have a family to bear, why would they do that? Um, it, I suppose it also meant that the people that were working in public health, and, and I think we saw that during the pandemic, were incredibly um, passionate about public health medicine because that's the only reason you would do it. And the, the other part of that is that because they didn't have that level of autonomy and power that a consultant would have to work independently, um, they tended to not have the same voice that was needed to speak at, you know, government level and at local authority level and at every level in Ireland, Inc., in a sense that you need to speak to put health into all the policies and all the planning 
and all the the work of government so that that health and the effects on health are considered at every level and that voice never really got heard so that that was have been one of the main effects of not having consultant contracts for specialists but I, it would be unfair to say that there weren't consultants because there were consultant level doctors working they just didn't have that ability to lead and to speak and to um and they also didn't have the resources with which to do it because they had no teams Fair, fair enough. Well, well explained there, Anne, I think. Um, and Peter, it, it does state in your article that although recruitment has largely been successful, and that's with the huge caveats there on consultants that Anne has brought in, public health experts emphasise that there is work to be done in establishing the systems to support them. What do we mean by systems? What's required there? A few things. So public health crosses many disciplines and many different areas. So the experts really say that different areas of the health service need to talk to each other. So in particular, primary care and GP care needs to be strengthened. It's at local level, really, where public health is ideally addressed at the most local level possible. So we need you know, GPs, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, midwives, pharmacists, other health professionals to all work together in some shape or form. And this happens quite well in most countries, as far as I understand. But in Ireland, we're a little bit behind In addition, then, all the public health staff in the world will amount to nothing if we don't have strong evidence-based data about the health of the nation across various different issues like infection and smoking and obesity and so on. Um, And this includes local populations, regional populations, the national population, children, and then some groups who might be more vulnerable to to, to particular illnesses or or, or to particular um, health issues children, travellers, migrant populations, the LGBTQI plus community and all of the experts that I spoke to, they all agreed that the best model for a public health system would ideally be based on data and evidence in relation to the health of the nation. And Peter outlines very clearly why data is so important to public health specialists. Does Ireland collect enough data about the collective health of the nation to be useful? There are two issues with our data. Uh, One is whether we collect enough and the second is what we do with the data we do collect. So do we collect enough data? We collect probably not quite enough data. Um, We don't collect a lot of data on um, that would help us to identify inequalities more easily. So we don't collect ethnic identifier data in many places. So that would be telling whether your whether your ethnicity is is Irish or African or a traveller or um, you know other um, so various levels of ethnicity, and also we don't collect um, data on. Um, your socioeconomic status. So um, there are different proxies that you can use for socioeconomic status. So education level is is one, um, or even the area that you live in, um, because there's very good um, coded information on, on Ireland on the socioeconomic status of various small areas in Ireland, you know, what the, you know, what the majority socioeconomic group of people living in a small area which may be 30, 40, 50 people um, up to a couple of hundred. Um, So we have that information but we don't use it or tie it to our health data. So, you know, we have air codes but we we don't, you know, really use them to help to kind of determine the socioeconomic um, status 
of the area and then there and use that as a proxy for the socioeconomic status of the person. And because we don't collect that data, then a lot of the good data that we might have can't be used um, to you to, to help determine um, outcomes and um, healthcare usage for people in different um, socioeconomic groups or in different ethnic groups. So that's something we're not good at and we need to really improve at. Um, we do collect a lot of data. Our problem is that uh, our data systems don't speak to each other. So we have all these silos of data that don't, even within health, even within various parts of the health service that don't, you know, that can't speak to each other. Uh, and we have a very poor um, information systems, especially within the public health function, you know, our surveillance data doesn't link up with our outbreak and control data. And in fact, there isn't an outbreak uh, and, and case management system for public health medicine. And again, that was a big problem during the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, and there is work afoot to, to because we can't work, health protection can't function without a, a data system, but that data system then should be able to speak to all the other parts of the public health function and then wider than that to the other parts of the health service. Our GPs are, are independent practitioners and um, their data, they own their own data and there is no way uh, nationally of, of uh, having a data repository so that we have this rich data of um, the patterns of healthcare usage in, in primary care um, in, in general practice, but we have no access to it. We don't have a unique identifier yet in place. And yet again, they're hoping that this year will be the year. This is probably one of about the last 18 years when it's maybe hoped that this year would be the year. We have a lot of data, but we don't do enough with it. And there are certain areas where we don't collect enough data and we need to collect some more. But if we just were able to use well the data that we do have, that would be a very good start. Absolutely. Data being an eternal problem, depending on what's being gathered and how it can be used. We've seen that in the past with our investigations into traveller health and young people's health in particular, um, that the, the lack of ethnic identifiers really makes it difficult to target particular solutions towards people and, and their particular challenges. Another challenge you identified, Peter, was an interesting one. And this speaks to a lot of what Anne said, that of tackling inequality through policy. Can you explain how that's connected to public health? Because this is a big one. So public health, because it's so inextricably linked to social equality, is inherently political. So a healthy nation is a more equal one. And that gets into questions then of who governs us and what policy positions we take and are they left or are they right? Um, and the journalist, Catelyn Moran, she was one of seven siblings raised on benefits in a council estate in England. And she once told the Irish Times, you know how you feel when you've only 4% battery left on your phone? That's how it feels like to be poor. So, of course, if you're homeless or you have poor housing, stress or mould or poor ventilation are going to affect your health. If you're struggling to pay bills, can't put food on the table for your kids, your nutrition is going to be impacted. If you have poor community facilities, no pitches, sports centres, you can't afford to pay for a gym membership. You're afraid to go for a run in your estate because of antisocial behaviour in the evenings, a problem that particularly affects women, of course. Uh, all of this is going to impact your health. So... 
an effective system of public health medicine will really need to centre the needs of society's poorest and most vulnerable members. And this is something that may lead to challenging questions for future governments. I also think it's worth adding, of course, that in a future recession, public health medicine will probably be an area that's very vulnerable. If you're looking at making cuts, what are you going to cut? Cancer services? Or are you going to cut this slightly more nebulous idea of public health? Because nobody's necessarily going to go, oh, they're not running an anti-obesity campaign or they're not concerned about reducing smoking. So I think it's very vulnerable in future recessions. Are you concerned about that, Anne? Uh, You talked at the very top of this of how public health was kind of largely invisible as a as a speciality until there was an emergency and then I suppose the resources thrown at it were to do with the emergency. Are you worried about it slipping back into the shadows and not getting the attention that we know governments need to pay to it and policy decisions that would, I suppose, correct inequity that lead to these really poor public health outcomes? Absolutely. Uh, without a doubt. And this is not just a problem in Ireland. This is a global problem. Uh, it has, uh, if you look at the history of, of various um, aspects of medicine over the years, this has always happened. That when, when things get tight, public health is the first to fall because um, A, as we've said, it's largely invisible, but B, the outcomes, you know, we work towards outcomes that might happen in 20 years time. We organise vaccination programmes for children so that as adults they don't get cancer. This, uh, while it's very important, um, you know, isn't a, a, a visible priority when things are very tight. Uh, and certainly, you know, smoking, obesity, alcohol, you know, all these campaigns, the, the improvements are down the line. And when there's a problem staring you in the face and there's another problem staring you in the face in 15 years time, you know, the government has money, it'll tackle the one straight in front of it. This has happened repeatedly, you know, in Africa, there is a very sad um, story of uh, almost uh, eliminating malaria in, in large parts of Africa in the 1970s, but then taking the foot off the pedal, re-diverting the, the uh, prevention fund into something more pressing and malaria research and we all see the result of that now. So yes, that happens. It happens historically. So we need to be aware of it. We need to be wise and we need to make sure uh, within the best of our power that it doesn't happen. And I think it's thing and it'll, it, it you know, will undoubtedly happen when things get tight. Okay. And Peter, then in that case, do you see this as a, a one of those rare types of health news stories, one with some cause for hope and positivity? Is this broadly positive am I okay to say that yeah I think I think hope for sure absolutely I think I I think it's largely hopeful notwithstanding some slowdown in recruitment and the larger systemic issues that will need to be addressed there was a concern at the beginning that they'd never be able to recruit this many public health doctors and and specialists and allied health professionals largely it's on track yeah hopeful I think not necessarily positive but hopeful Well, thanks for that, Peter, and also to Dr. Andy for joining me today. Our public health sector, a largely ongoing project for all citizens to maintain and improve general health outcomes, was thrown under the spotlight during COVID. It seemed like a lot of resources were directed to it, but very much within the frame of stemming an emergency rather than sustainable work, as would be the usual remit of public health professionals. 
Where we are now is a slight improvement on where it was, from consultant agreements to the use of data, but many areas still clearly need attention. You have been listening to The Explainer, brought to you today by Noteworthy.ie. It was produced by Laura Byrne. If you want to learn more about our work at Noteworthy and how we source our stories from you, our readers and listeners, head to our site at Noteworthy.ie and sign up to our newsletter, which gives you an insider look at our latest investigations by visiting noteworthy.ie forward slash newsletter. Thanks for having us and see you next time.